Good afternoon. Our final case of the afternoon is Radiator Specialty Company versus Airwood Indemnity Company at all. I'll note uh, Justice Berger is recused in this case. We will hear from the first party. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. May it please the court. My name is Jonathan Harden, and along with my colleagues, Catherine Delpreet and Brad Cutro, I represent Radiator Specialty Company, the policyholder in this insurance coverage dispute. I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. Radiator has been a family-owned manufacturer in the Charlotte area for more than 80 years, making lubricants, penetrants, and other products under the liquid wrench and gunk trademarks. This appeal involves three questions of insurance contract interpretation. Radiator is the appellant on two of those questions and the appellee on one. And while this is a multi-issue and admittedly complex appeal, there is a single straightforward principle that's been the law in North Carolina for many decades that should guide us during today's argument, and it's this. Because the insurance carriers drafted the language in their policies, limitations on coverage are not favored and must be plain, unambiguous, and susceptible of only one reasonable construction. As this court has previously summed it up, quote, if the meaning of words or the effect of provisions is uncertain or capable of several reasonable interpretations, then the doubts will be resolved against the insurance company and in favor of the policyholder. It's the timeless canon of construction of contra proferentum, and it's a particularly important rule in the insurance context. Whether it's a business purchasing liability coverage, like here, or an individual purchasing auto or homeowner's insurance, policyholders usually don't have the ability or bargaining power to change the language in standard form policies written by multinational insurers. To be clear, Radiator believes the policy language plainly supports its positions. But even if there were ambiguity, if this court concludes that Radiator's interpretation is a reasonable one, then under North Carolina law, that's the end of the inquiry. In contrast, the insurers that drafted the language must show that their interpretation is the only reasonable one possible. The insurers cannot make this showing. On each of the contract interpretation questions before us today, allocation, horizontal exhaustion, and trigger of coverage, numerous state Supreme Courts have analyzed the same standard form policy language and concluded that the policyholder's interpretation controls. That's prima facie evidence that radiators interpretations are at least reasonable ones. So what the insurers are effectively asking this court to do is turn North Carolina law on its head and force the policyholder to bear the risk of any unclear language in these contracts. This court should decline their invitation to depart from the established rules of construction in this state. First, I want to talk about the issue of allocation. And briefly at the outset, I want to dispense with the question of mootness that relates to the allocation decision of the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals 
erroneously found that the issue of allocation was mooted by the final judgment. But as the parties' briefs show, none of the parties disputes that the Court of Appeals erred in how it interpreted the judgment below. None of the parties disputes that the final judgment entered by the trial court was actually based on a pro rata allocation. In fact, the monetary awards in the judgment were calculated by stipulation of the parties, and the parties used a pro rata allocation to do those calculations because that's what the trial court ordered us to do. So it is undisputed that the Court of Appeals erred when it concluded the allocation question was moved. If we reach the merits of the other issues, do we even need to talk about this particular question? If you... And I'm talking about for purposes of drafting an opinion. I guess I should have been a little more specific than I was. Um, if this court... I think this court should address the mootness question because if the Court of Appeals... Because as I'm going to get to in a moment, the Court of Appeals correctly held that the all sums interpretation is compelled by the policy language. And what should have happened is the Court of Appeals should have remanded back to the trial court so that the judgment could be recalculated using an all sums allocation. And so this court, indeed, when it affirms the Court of Appeals correct legal ruling that the all sums interpretation controls, this court should remand back to the trial court for that recalculation of the judgment because the mootness finding of the Court of Appeals was an error and all the parties agree that it wasn't moot. What the Court of Appeals got right, as I mentioned, and what should be affirmed, is that the language of these policies compels the all sums interpretation advanced by radiator. And that's the same interpretation of the same standard form policy language that has been adopted by more than a dozen states around the country, including the most recent decision on this question, which came out of the Montana Supreme Court, which was a subject of a notice of supplemental authority and was also discussed in our reply. Starting first with the policy language, because this is a case about insurance contract interpretation, the policy language itself makes clear that these policies cover, subject to their limits of liability, the full amount of radiator's liability in these underlying cases. I'll use the landmark policy language as an example. It says, we will pay on behalf of the insured those sums which the insured becomes legally obligated to pay as damages to which this insurance applies because of, because of bodily injury. It, 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 just to make sure, make sure I don't get off track to, you know, up front, is there not some additional language that refers to uh, during the policy period or something like that? There is. And where does it appear in relation to the language that you just read to us? Um, it depends on which policy you're looking at. Well, you, you, you picked landmarks, I think, so let's stick yeah. with that one. In, in landmarks, actually the definition of bodily injury in landmark is instructive because it expressly includes damage that continues outside of the policy period. So if you look at the landmark bodily injury definition, which is at paragraph four of the insuring agreement, it defines bodily injury, and it says which occurs during the policy period, but then it goes on to say in that same provision, bodily injury includes any continuation, change, or resumption of that bodily injury after the end of the policy period. 
the within the policy period language that you referred to, Justice Irvin, serves as the trigger of coverage. If there is bodily injury. And in, in, in your view, no other purpose? I mean, it's, not just, it's just trigger of coverage. Yes. It doesn't affect any other uh, part of the policy. Yes, Justice Irvin. Within the policy period impacts which policies respond. Is the policy triggered or does it respond is based on whether or not there's bodily injury or in other cases property damage that occurs within the policy period. If there is, if the policies respond, what do they cover? And there, they don't cover the bodily injury itself. They don't cover property damage itself. These are third-party liability policies. They cover the insured's liability because of that bodily injury. So what the insurers do when they take that phrase within the policy period, they're double counting it. They're saying, I'm yes, sorry, it's I'm sorry, they're double counting? They're double counting it. They're trying to use it both for the trigger of coverage. So they're using, they're using it for two different, when you say double counting, you mean they're using it for two different purposes. That's correct. Okay. One of those purposes for which it was not intended. They're trying to use it as a limitation on coverage. But if you look at the insuring agreement, the policies say once the policy's triggered, once it's determined that there has been either bodily injury or property damage that occurred within the policy period, then what does the policy cover? It covers all sums or those sums which the insured becomes legally obligated to pay. And that includes not just damages because, liability for damages because of the bodily injury itself, but all damages arising from or in consequence of it. As this court held, damages because of can include punitive damages. And as the intermediate appellate courts in applying this court's rulings have held, that also includes loss of consortium. Loss of consortium necessarily continues to occur after the policy period is over. But liability as damages for loss of consortium is fully covered by any policy that is triggered by the presence of bodily injury within the policy period. In a, that's why the Court of Appeals was correct when they held that the policies by their language are clear. Any claims covered by a particular policy, that is if the policy responds, they must be defended and indemnified by the insurer under that policy. And the Court of Appeals was correct when they went on to say, we hold that it was indeed error to prorate these costs where the contracts explicitly impose those obligations otherwise. As important as what the language of the policy says is also what's not in the policy. There is no express pro rata limitation on coverage in these policies. The insurers could have included an express pro rata limitation on coverage, but for whatever reason, they did not. And this issue, the dispute interpretation over allocation is not a new issue. While it is a issue of first impression in this court, it has been litigated for more than 40 years. The seminal all sums interpretation decision was issued in 1980. The seminal pro rata allocation decision was issued in 1981. And intermediate appellate court decisions on these issues had been percolating for a decade before then. Most of the policies at issue in this case were issued after the insurance industry was well aware that courts were split on how this language should be interpreted. And for whatever reason, the insurance companies chose not 
to make clear in their policies that they were supposedly attempting to provide a pro rata limitation on coverage. Not only that, the absence of an express limitation, but there's also other language in the policy that is fundamentally inconsistent with the entire premise of pro rata allocation. And the premise, as just, Justice Irvin alluded to, is the insurer's claim, well, these, part, these policies only cover the bodily injury that occurs between the dates that my policy incepts and the policy expires. But there are provisions in these policies that are fundamentally inconsistent with that premise. I read one earlier, the landmark provision stating that bodily injury includes any continuation, change, or resumption of that bodily injury after the end of the policy period. That provision, quite frankly, cannot coexist in a world where there is supposedly a pro rata limitation on coverage baked into the policy somewhere. In addition, the Fireman's Fund excess policies follow form to underlying policies that contain provisions called non-cumulation of limits clauses. And they state that when the company, meaning the insurer, has two different policies in different years, in prior years, that cover the same loss, that they're going to limit the policyholder's recovery to the limit of one of those policies. Again, that type of provision, a non-cumulation of limits or prior insurance provision, cannot coexist in a policy that is supposedly contains a pro rata limitation on coverage. And that's exactly what New York's highest court held in the NRA Viking pump case in 2016 that policies with this these types of other provisions cannot be reconciled with the pro rata interpretation. And so the all sums interpretation must control. The insurers briefing and their arguments in the lower courts focused as well as well as their attempt to use the phrase within the policy period for a purpose for which it's not intended. The insurers also focused on arguments about what they claim were notions of unfairness or inefficiency. Now, to be clear, this court is not being asked to choose between two abstract legal doctrines. This course is being asked to interpret the language of these insurance contracts. Questions of a contract interpretation are questions of law, not equity. So notions of whether either an allocation method or interpretation is fair or unfair or efficient or inefficient are beside the point. We must enforce... Could, could, you, could you take those criteria into consideration in construing the policy language? Along, I'm more familiar with the statutory construction cases, but they're similar. They say, in effect, we've, uh, you try to avoid an unreasonable or absurd result and assume that the policy drafters wouldn't have intended such a result, therefore we consider that in construing a policy. Is that sort of constructional activity inappropriate in a case like this one? This court's precedence, and I know we cited one in our brief, Justice Irvin, in talking about construing contracts, uh, noted that it's not the job of courts in North Carolina to rewrite contracts, even if the bargain turned out to be a hard one for one, more of, the, for one of the parties. But I do want to talk about one notion of fairness that's already built in to the rules of construction, and that is the doctrine of contra proferentum, or the canon of construction, 
contraproferentum that I mentioned earlier. It would be fundamentally unfair to force policyholders in this state to bear the risk of insurance carriers drafting unclear language. So I do think that to the extent any equitable notions might influence the construction of contracts, it's already built into this court's pre-existing rules of construction. And just one example, you know, I could talk for hours about why the all sums interpretation is fair and is efficient. And just briefly, it allows policyholders like Radiator to access all the insurance coverage they paid for. And ultimately that means it will increase the amount of money that is potentially available to compensate injured tort claimants. As for efficiency, under the pro rata interpretation, insurers each write a check, if you will, for their tiny pro rata fraction. But those checks, when you lump them together, only amount to a fraction, in this case, of what radiator, of the coverage radiator paid for, leaving radiator to shoulder. When you say the coverage radiator paid for, do you mean that in some objective sense or the coverage that you, your client contends that it thought it bought? Yes, so Radiator purchased policies that promised to defend any suit seeking damages on account of bodily injury. The duty to defend is a service obligation. It's indivisible. And yet Radiator has had to shoulder the burden of most of its defense costs for going on decades now because of the pro rata interpretation advanced by the carriers. In terms of efficiency, the carriers argue that, well, it's inefficient, the all sums interpretation is inefficient because, well, you select one carrier and they pay everything up to their limit and then they have to go chase the other carriers. What happens in reality is that the carriers in most cases enter into a cost sharing agreement and they each pay their percentage and then those percentages add up to 100% of the policyholder's defense obligation and 100% of a settlement or judgment. Still, when, so when you say the carrier share, are you talking about a lot of them or just the one for that period and the umbrella policy for that time? I'm talking about all of them that for whom they're triggered. Okay. As a practical matter, in all sums jurisdictions, even though the, po the policyholder has the ability to elect one carrier and say, I'm tendering to you, defend this case, indemnify me for any settlements or judgments, as a practical matter in the real world, the other carriers who are triggered on that claim and often enter into cost-sharing agreements with the other insurers where they agree via private contract to split up the defense costs and the indemnity obligations so that those checks that come from the various insurance carriers add up to the full defense coverage and full indemnity coverage that the insurer. And with that agreement, um, and I can't say that I've read every single document in this record, um, but would that be in the record here, the, ca the carrier's agreement? There's no cost share agreement in this case, okay. Justice Hudson, because the carriers. <laughs> I'll have to go look through thousands. <laughs> because the carriers contend that it's only a pro rata interpretation so they're not obligated for their checks to add up to the full defense or the full indemnity obligations. So, so what, I, what I had understood your discussion about this issue to be was that 
you had essentially a choice. If you went with the pro rata approach, you would wind up paying it up front from different people to the policyholder. But if you went with the all sums approach, whoever wound up being the lucky carrier who got selected as the uh, person to provide the initial indemnification and defense could then bring, uh, and I, I guess it would be a contribution action rather than an indemnification action against the other carriers who potentially would be liable. And the agreement that you're talking about would be either a settlement prior to the time that such suit was filed or a settlement agreement settling such a secondary suit. Is that correct? That's correct. And I'm glad you asked, Justice Irving, because I want to be clear. The pro rata interpretation, the, pol the insurers who are triggered only pay a fraction of what the policyholder is owed, and those fractions cobbled together still pale in comparison to the full defense and indemnity obligation that the policies provide. Under the all sums... And when you say the policies provide, are you talking about a single policy or all of the policies accumulated? Each individual policy promises to pay all sums or those so sums. So when you say the sum total, it's, let's say you had five policies that mm -hmm. were triggered, and I realize we'll get to trigger at some point in this discussion, but if you had five policies, when you're talking about the sum total, you're adding the policy limits for all five of those policies on top of themselves? So the way... As a, ma as a matter of right. math. The way it would work is, the, first of all, the defense obligation is not subject to the policy limit. Right. It is unlimited. Right. So as a matter of a duty to defend, the policyholder is simply asking, pay for my full defense, like each one of you individually and severally promised. And if all five of the carriers in that situation would like to each write a check for 20%, that's fine. They can enter, they can enter into a private cost-sharing agreement to do that. If they have a dispute with each other and only some or one of those carriers is willing to write a check, as long as that check adds up to 100%, the policyholder is made whole up front contemporaneously in real time. And then if there is a contribution dispute, then that happens on the back end and does not prejudice the policyholder. As far as the duty to indemnify is concerned, right, then you have those policy limits, okay? And so the, the figure that you gave earlier about what your client had procured was essentially stacking the five policy limits on top of each other? And that's a question not very yeah. artfully phrased. So formulaically, you could ask one of those five carriers to indemnify you for the entire settlement or judgment if the settlement or judgment exceeds the limit of that primary policy, you could then go to the excess policy immediately above it and say, kick in the difference. But the reason I've asked the question is you've alluded a number of times to what your client had, the coverage that your client had procured, and I was trying to figure out how you calculated that number. Was that the biggest policy limit for any one policy that might apply, or is a combination of limits from several policies? Yeah, I think Justice Servant, I was referring more generally to indemnification for all sums or those sums that the insured would be legally obligated to pay. If, for example, there were a settlement that outstripped the limits of the policies, then the policyholder didn't pay for that much in coverage. So Radiator is not asking for more in limits than it paid premiums for. It's simply asking for the protection that it purchased. I see my time is running low. If there are no further questions on allocation, 
um, this court should affirm the Court of Appeals conclusion that the all sums interpretation is compelled by the policy language, but reverse the Court of Appeals error in misinterpreting the judgment as rendering the question moot, and therefore remand to the trial court to recalculate the judgment based on the all sums interpretation. Moving to horizontal exhaustion very quickly, this issue affects landmark only, only under the landmark policy. Um, and the lower court's rulings are self-contradictory. And the only question before this court is whether or not to reverse the lower court's conclusion that the language in Landmark's policies requires horizontal exhaustion before Landmark has a duty to defend. The lower courts also interpreted the exact same phrase, other insurance, in the opposite way, as not requiring horizontal exhaustion before Landmark has a duty to indemnify. But the latter conclusion is not before this court because Landmark did not petition for its review. Therefore, if the court reverses on the question before it, as Radiator believes it should, then it will harmonize the, the lower court's interpretation of the policy language. And this is consistent with how every single state except one has interpreted policy language similar to Landmark's and rejected the horizontal exhaustion interpretation advanced by Landmark in this case. And North Carolina courts have similarly interpreted the phrase other insurance when it's used in liability policies as referring only to insurance within the same policy period that need be exhausted before an umbrella or excess carrier has to pay. Getting to the self-contradictory nature here really briefly, it's a fundamental principle of insurance law that the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify but the lower court's horizontal exhaustion ruling as it pertains to Landmark gets this backwards. Right now, Landmark has a present duty to indemnify, but no duty to defend. And that creates the unfortunate possibility of perverse incentives that would be bad for the court system. When you have an insurer that doesn't have to defend and only indemnify, they would rationally be incentivized to refuse to approve even a reasonable settlement because they're not picking up the tab for the defense. That could lead to fewer settlements of tort cases in this state. On the flip side, admittedly, a rational policyholder might be incentivized to settle a case as soon as possible, even where it might not be reasonable to do so, so that they could stop having crushing defense expenses. That could lead to more insurance coverage litigation, where the policyholder and the insurer dispute whether a settlement was reasonable. This court should reverse the lower court's contradictory horizontal exhaustion interpretation of Landmark's duty to defend and remand to the trial court to revise the judgment to add defense costs to the judgment against Landmark. And finally, quickly, on trigger of coverage. Under this court's precedent in Gaston County, the quote, widely accepted, end quote, injury in fact trigger is quote, logical and true to the policy language, end quote. That interpretation of the contract language means that all policies in effect when any bodily injury occurs are triggered and must respond. One of the insurers, Fireman's Fund, agrees with Radiator on this court's injury in fact interpretation. You'll hear more from Mr. Catula about this later. Where there is disagreement, however, is over how the injury in fact interpretation applies to the particular facts of this case. When did the injuries in fact occur? That is the subject of a dispute among the parties and their medical experts, and there have been no fact findings 
at the trial court level on this issue. At least as I understand, and I may have yours and your colleagues' arguments backward, and if I do, tell me, but I had understood your argument to be, in essence, that the injury, in fact, occurred when you first had a malignant cell. That's Fireman's Fund's position. Okay. All right. So yours is? Ours is, and Fireman's Fund's expert's position when he issued his report and gave his deposition before he later changed his mind after discovery was over, was that the injury, in fact, trigger period begins upon a claimant's first exposure and continues all the way through until the claimant is diagnosed with the disease or if the claimant, in some cases, dies, whichever comes first. So it is in that entire period in which all policies that are in effect are triggered. So your, your, yours would start it at least with exposure and continue to either... Diagnosis or death. Okay. Yes, just a service. Because the trial court erroneously concluded on summary judgment that, expo that an exposure trigger interpretation controls, the trial court did not hear expert testimony at trial and did not make any factual findings. So this court should reverse the lower court's erroneous exposure trigger interpretation and remand to the trial court to make those factual findings about when, in fact, did these injuries occur. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from uh, Fireman's Fund. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Michael Catula on behalf of Fireman's Fund Insurance Company. It's my distinct pleasure to appear before your honors today. Um, I'm going to be addressing two issues here, trigger of coverage and allocation. Let me start that Fireman's Fund is an excess insurer. It did not issue primary policies, and there was a ruling in the court below that Fireman's Fund has no duty to defend or pay defense costs, and that has not been appealed. So that is part of the, the, the landscape. Fireman's is only here as for indemnity costs um, that exceed underlying insurance. Trigger of coverage asks the question, when did the bodily injury happen? That answer determines which policies may afford coverage. So I'm starting where John left off. And I think it's a natural segue from trigger of coverage into allocation. The choices between an exposure trigger used by the lower courts and the injury and fact trigger used by this court in Gaston County. With exposure, the policies in effect when a claimant is exposed to a product afford coverage. With injury, in fact, the policies in effect when a claimant suffers actual injury afford coverage. In this case, these are two different periods of time. <coughs> so John said radiator's position is that the trigger starts at exposure, first exposure, and then it continues into the point where there are actual injuries all the way until there's a diagnosis. The other insurers argue an exposure trigger. It, start, it starts with the first exposure, but it ends before there are actual injuries. But it would include any, at least in, this is a factual question, and if I've got it wrong, Mr. Cthulhu, please tell me. My understanding of their argument is that any policy, any, any insurer that had a policy that covered a period during which any exposure occurred, their coverage would be triggered. Is that, that their That's their position. 
in your in, in Mr. Harden's position is basically every policy that covered a period between initial exposure and diagnosis or death would be covered. Would be right. His is the broad, the broadest possible. Radiators is the broadest possible. Theirs is a narrow period of just the exposure. Which, which could be, you know, depending on the, we've got a product that might be used multiple times, so you sure. could have multiple exposures. That's right. And yours, yours is the one that you've explained. How, how would one apply, I mean, does it mean, I understand we haven't had any factual determinations yet. I understand that, that that's something if you actually got to it would have to be done in the trial court. But how would you actually make that determination or the determination that you're required, you're suggesting be required? Where, where the injury in fact starts with a malignancy yes. because when there's a mutation, there's, there's no physical effect. It would be with medical evidence. Um, we would call an expert witness, as fireman's called the only expert in the case who, who um, radiator didn't have an expert on these issues. None of the remaining parties besides Fireman's Fund had an expert on these issues. But Fireman's had well, Dr. There Gore. were some other parties in the case that had experts, at least as I understood the record. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And we would call experts. Um, just as in an underlying um, tort case, the plaintiff would call experts in order to develop evidence of causation, general causation, specific causation, um, in order to make out their tort case. So just a real quick question. Um, your position is that the trigger, the injury starts with malignancy? Starts with malignancy because it's at that point that the, that the body has an actual physical effect from um, the exposure. What do you mean with malignancy? When it's first discovered or when it no. actually begins or when it's diagnosed? So, so ordinarily you would have a diagnosis date in a claimant. That diagnosis date is not what starts the trigger. Instead, you would have an expert witness talk about the medicine of when that malignancy that became diagnosable later began. And what they say is that this happens fairly quickly. It happens in a short time, that a malignancy cannot go undiagnosed or unnoticed for long periods of time. Well, wouldn't that depend on the nature of the carcinogen? Well, in this case, it's benzene, and that's what Dr. Gore has said, that it cannot go unnoticed for long periods of time. So, it, in but essence... But there, there, there is a way to prove that medically and... Yes. Backwards they, from the diagnosis to when the malignancy began? Correct. It would be sort of like, what is the range of time that the malignancy had to have occurred during? And we would say, for example, Fireman's Fund insured from 1976 to 1980, we would say since 94% of the benzene claimants in this case had a diagnosis date after January 1, 2001, that, that there's no way that malignancy could have existed in the 1976 to 1980 period. In fact, it couldn't exist in the 1980s. It couldn't exist in the early part of the 1990s. So here's what's happening. The exposure trigger triggers policies when the people but, but, are but, but presumably if we got to that stage you could call your experts somebody else could call theirs and we could have an argument over when them you'd have to have a determination under your trigger test before we even got any further down the road it, it would be part of the remand 
on injury in fact. But with respect, I mean, I don't, and I don't, I'm sure it's in the record somewhere. I don't know how many claims we're talking about at this point, but given the nature of the product and the size of the company, I suspect it's not an in, in, immaterial number. Uh, so in each case, you would have to have that determination made before you could determine which policies were on the hook, for lack of a better word. I think you could have a, a limited issue trial on when does the injury start, when does the malignancy start, and so you could hear from experts on that, and you would get a, a time period, and then you could apply that to all the claims. But you would have to, at least the, all of the claimants, at least in theory, would have to have some opportunity to be heard on that, wouldn't they? Not the claimants. The claimants have already been paid. They've, the settlements have okay. been paid. Claimants are, cl the claimants have already been paid. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So, uh, excuse me, I would like to follow up on that as well, Mr. Katula. Um, you, you have defined uh, injury as the malignancy, but uh, reading the um, expert testimony, I believe it's Dr. Gaston, <coughs> when someone ingests benzene, it, it damages their DNA. Uh, why do you think that that's not the injury? How, how can you make that distinction? Well, what Dr. Gore said is that there's no way to know when someone's exposure to benzene results in a mutation to a blood stem cell. Um, there's, it may happen, it may not happen. And what he said is you need 15 mutations for that cell to become malignant. The body can fix those mutations and then it is as if they never happened. And then you have to start over again to get 15 in order for it to become malignant. So it, essentially there is no actual impairment to a person who has one or more mutations. Dr. Gore explained that each of us may have 20,000 mutations a day, but the body has certain defenses to it. Like in the Wilder versus Amatex case, where this court said disease claims are, are a different type of claim. That not every exposure results in, to a harmful substance, results in injury. It's only when there is a malignancy, and then that malignancy proliferates leukemic progeny, and then the person starts to suffer sickness. Um, and so, our point is that the exposure trigger doesn't trigger the period of sickness and disease. It only triggers during a period when the people are clinically well and not sick. And that, that does not, that's not true to the policy language. I'd like to turn to the allocation issue as well. Um, allocation asks how to allocate the defense and indemnity costs to the policies which are triggered. The choice here is between pro rata time on risk and all sums approach, also called joint and several liability in some of the cases. The pro rata allocation method is true to the policy language as a whole, giving meaning to all of the terms and rendering none of the terms of the contract meaningless. The policies here afford coverage for all sums or those sums to which the insurance applies. And that's a quote, to which the insurance applies. Doesn't cover all sums to which the insurance doesn't apply, um, and it explicitly provides that the insurance only applies to bodily injury, defined as bodily injury, sickness, and disease, which, quote, results during the policy period. Now, your, your colleague, Mr. Harden, argued when I asked him about this aspect of your argument, he said, well, your, I think his expression was double counting. Yes, that, yes. That, he, that you're using words that were intended, I think, the more... Another way to put it would be to say that you were using a word that was intended solely to deal with the trigger issue uh, for purposes of making an allocation determination. That's, those are my words and not his, but I think that's what he was saying. Yes. Assuming that's correct, what's wrong with that? 
Oh, what's wrong with it is that the word trigger doesn't even appear in the policy. And there isn't there's a, to, There's got to be something that triggers. Is, right, but, but the, during the policy period is the, does it concern trigger, but as the Massachusetts Supreme Court said, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts in the Boston gas case, um, they said that it serves two purposes, that this is not just a term that deals with trigger, but it also places a limitation on the all sums language to pay all sums which result during the policy period. Now, uh, and before you get away, I, I just I need to clarify something. I'm looking at some of your policy language, and it says the term personal injury means, and instead of it saying bodily injury means sickness or disease, it says personal injury means bodily injury, comma, sickness, comma, disease, then some other words, and says which occurs, occurs during the policy period. I'm still uh, struggling with the whole business of the benzene causing DNA change that it might not be an injury. Can you help me with that? I understand, Your Honor, and I think the point that Fireman's Fund's position is that, a one, we don't know that during any particular period of exposure that it does cause damage, that it did cause damage and that it did cause a mutation. Two, a mutation without any physical impact, which is essentially there's, a, there's one mutation and you need 15 for that cell to become malignant and to start an evolving cancer in the person. So one mutation, most of us are probably have some mutation. Average person has 20,000 mutations a day, but the body has defenses to it. So that mutation could be fixed tomorrow, and then it's as if it never happened. So to call that injury, but then not call the period of time when someone has cancer, has proliferation of leukemia blast cells in their body, and then is, is sick and suffers from leukemia to not trigger that period, which is what the exposure trigger does, seems anomalous. Thank you. So the pro rata rule is the clear majority rule in the United States. The Maryland High Court in Rosello in 2020 found that. It's not just the clear majority rule. It is also the clear trend over the last 20 years. 10 of the 12 state high courts that have addressed the allocation issue since 2002 have held that that policy language only allows for one reasonable interpretation, and that is when the timing of the injury is not known precisely, each triggered policy is only liable for its pro rata share. Um, so, a pro rata share of what exactly? So, a settlement. So, let's say a claimant has an injury and we trigger 10 years of policies that each year is assigned one over 10 of the, show, of the cost for indemnity. So 10% goes in each year. Now what happened here, why Radiator doesn't get 100% under pro rata is because Radiator made choices. They made choices in the way that they contracted that affect Radiator's ability to collect. So Radiator did a number of things. They settled with a number of their insurers in this case. And they recovered less pennies on the dollar on those policies. They do not want to allocate any costs to the policies they settled. They took the money but from those insurers, but all sums lets them avoid that bargain that they made with the settled insurers. They have policies that they, they either didn't buy insurance in the 1960s and earlier, or they lost those policies. Pro rata would assign a share to those years if they're triggered. They don't want to put a share on that, so they want to pick a year. 
There's a number of other, they bought certain policies with deductibles and self-insured retentions. The premium was less for those policies, but they don't want to pay the premium, they don't want to pay the deductible. Um, let's say it's a $50,000 deductible. If, if pro rata allocation assigned a share to that year, then that money would have to come out of their pocket. So there's a reason if they had 100% pure insurance and they didn't make bad choices, they pro rata and all sums would essentially come out the same except all sums would require a second satellite litigation where the chosen insurer has to ask the other insurers who didn't get asked to pay to pay their share. That would bring in all of the settled insurers because the settled insurers have settlement agreements with Radiator that Radiator agrees to reduce its claim against the non-settled insurers if the, if the non-settled insurers sue the settled insurers. So it would, it would create a whole second wave of litigation here, whereas pro rata would avoid that. So I, I urge the court to adopt pro rata allocation and consistent with the majority rule. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from counsel for the other defendants. May it please the court. Good afternoon, your honors. Good afternoon, counsel. My name is Mark Subchuk. I'm here on behalf of National Union Fire Insurance Company of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. National Union respectfully asks that if this court reverse the Court of Appeals mootness determination, it also reverse the Court of Appeals conclusion that all sums allocation applies to the National Union policies. National Union also respectfully asks that this court affirm the trial court and the Court of Appeals application of a so-called exposure trigger to determine coverage under which of radiators policies is triggered. I'd like to begin by addressing the allocation issue and then move on to discuss the trigger of coverage issue. National Union agrees with counsel for Fireman's, Fireman's Fund for all the reasons stated that pro rata allocation applies to every policy at issue in this case. But with respect to the National Union policies, this is especially true because they lack the, the key language behind all sums allocation, which is an obligation for the insurer to pay all sums. The National Union policies obligate National Union to pay those sums, not all sums, those sums, that RSC becomes legally obligated to pay as damages because of bodily injury during the policy. If I, if I understand your colleague's argument, he says there's, that there's no difference between all sums and those sums. He's made that argument. Well, uh, what, just so I hear both sides of the story and understand it, what's your response to his argument? My response is that the case law is squarely on National Union side on this issue. And the, I'll point the court to the Thompson versus Insurance Company of North America case out of the Indiana Appellate Court, which held that the those sums language coupled with the during the policy period requirement, like the exact language in the National Union policies, required pro rata allocation. I'll also point the court to the three-judge concurrence in the Lubrizol case, which is out of the Ohio Supreme Court, pretty recent case, 2020. And the court stated there, when a contract provision says that an insurer is required to pay only those sums that arise from damage that occurs during the policy period, that is all the insurer may be required to pay. The insurance provision at issue here unambiguously so provides. I'd also cite the court to the Stryker case out of the Western District of Michigan, where that court applied pro rata allocation because it said, and I quote, the fundamental aspect of the policy language relied upon courts adopting the joint and several approach, the all sums approach, is not present in the National Union policy. 
Now, to counter that, RSC has cited one case, the Norfolk case, which is a trial court memorandum opinion from the Circuit Court of Cook County that concludes in one line at the end of the opinion that there, those sums versus all sums is a distinction without a difference. No analysis, no reasoning, no citation to authority. RSC also claims in its brief that the those sums issue is a disfavored limitation on coverage. But it's not a limitation on coverage at all. It's contained right in the policy's insuring agreement. It sets forth affirmatively what the policy covers. It's not in the nature of an exclusion. It doesn't exclude what would otherwise be a covered loss. It's, it affirmatively sets forth what national union will pay. And then RSC has also argued that the language is not direct or clear enough, that if the insurer wanted to have pro rata allocation, it should have been clearer about that. Or it should have been, it contained an express pro rata provision in the policy. But. Well, I think they, I think they're open, Mr. Harden opened his argument by saying that any ambiguity went against you and in favor of him. Well, we do not believe these policies are ambiguous. Okay. We believe that those sums language coupled with the during the policy period, and the all sums for that matter, is clearly and unambiguously an obligation to pay for damages because of bodily injury during the policy period. It means what it says. But to the extent that RSC has argued that. Well, let me stop you, but what does bodily injury during the policy period mean? Bodily injury is bodily injury, sickness, or disease, including death at any time. Does it mean diagnosis? Does it mean onset of malignancy? Does it mean, what does it mean? In this particular case, turning, this gets to the trigger issue, we would say that it is exposure to benzene as applied in this particular case. Because the, and that actually segues into the exposure argument, Your Honor. But what it would be is damage to DNA. As Justice Berger pointed out, there is undisputed testimony in this case that DNA damages, or I'm sorry, benzene damages DNA in the form of a mutation upon exposure. And the trial court and the Court of Appeals recognized this, and they applied an exposure trigger. And that was appropriate for two reasons. It best aligns with the existing case law on this issue, and it aligns with the medical evidence. And as far as the case law is concerned, the only case that's considered this issue under North Carolina law in the progressive disease context to date is the imperial casualty case from the Eastern District of North Carolina. And that case adopted an exposure trigger because, and I quote, exposure to the dangerous substance at issue during the policy period caused immediate, albeit undetectable, physical harm, which ultimately led to disease or physical impairment after the expiration of the policy period. That's exactly what's going on here. As, again, as Justice Berger pointed out, benzene metabolites cause immediate DNA injury in the form of a mutation. But they leave the body quickly after exposure stops, within 24 to 72 hours. And they stop causing injury and damage at that time. And at least the way I understand this would be applied, and I just want to make sure that you're advocating exposure as a trigger. Correct. Approach that you agree with what I heard earlier, which was that any policy that was in effect during a period of any exposure, which would be the use of these products containing benzene by a claimant, that policy would be triggered. Correct. So that if you, 
somebody repetitively used uh, a radiator specialty product containing benzene every year for 20 years, all 20 of those policies, if they existed, would be triggered. If you mm -hmm. used it once, it would be triggered once. That's what the trial court policy. held. Okay. Yes. Now, Fireman's Fund has contended that imperial casualty and application of an exposure trigger in this case is inconsistent with the Gaston County case. Now, Gaston County is a different set of facts. It dealt with property damage and it dealt with a discrete accident on an undisputed date certain. But to the extent that Gaston recognizes anything, what Gaston recognizes is that damage, in this case, that was a property damage case, so they were, they were talking about damage, but it would be bodily injury in this case. It doesn't occur in a policy period, and that's what the policies require. The bodily damage or bodily injury must occur during the policy period. Gaston recognizes it doesn't occur in a policy period simply because it still exists in that policy period. And that is, that is our position with respect to why an exposure trigger applies. And to the extent that Fireman's Fund um, in the alternative and radiator argue for what, what is known as a continuous trigger, which Justice Irvin described as basically all policies from exposure until death or malignancy. A lot of that case law and the case law in which Fireman's Fund relies comes out of the asbestos context. And asbestos is a little different here than benzene because benzene leaves the body. Asbestos never does. Asbestos, once inhaled, stays in the lungs and continues to cause new injuries as time progresses, new injuries in subsequent policy periods. And that is decidedly different than what happens here with benzene. Unless your honors have any questions, I'd like to turn my time over to counsel for Landmark. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. My name is Steve Adams. I represent Landmark American Insurance Company, and it is a privilege to be here. There's a lot that's been said about allocation and trigger, and I want to switch gears for a few minutes and talk about horizontal exhaustion. Mr. Hardin mentioned it in the beginning. It's an issue that only applies to Landmark and the Landmark policies. Um, it, it has to do with, horizontal has, exhaustion has to do with when the duty to defend in the landmark policies arises. Is, is Mr. Hardin correct that, that we have both a duty to defend and an indemnity duty and that this issue only applies to one of those two responsibilities on the part of an insurance company? Well, not, not really, Your Honor. Um, Judge Lee in the trial court. I, I was hoping we could find something y'all agreed on, but evidently <laughs> failed. Judge Lee in the trial court ruled that horizontal exhaustion applied to both indemnity and defense. That was his ruling. He applied it under pro rata allocation a little differently than we wanted, but we didn't challenge that. But his ruling was that horizontal exhaustion applied both to indemnity and defense. 
the only issue here is is defense. Okay, and maybe that's where maybe what maybe that's what I was hoping I was going to hear. But so we're so we're talking the, the issue that you're talking about that you have brought forward only deals with the duty to defend. That's right. Okay. Exactly. We, so we, there's not an issue before us about exhaustion with respect to the indemnity part of the there, responsibility. There is not. Okay. No. The um, the landmark. Policies are excess policies. They're not primary policies. And, and I know that Radiator has taken the position many times that the landmark policies should be, should be primary policies, but they're not. They're excess policies that include a duty to defend. The, uh, speaking generally, excess policies sometimes include a duty to defend and sometimes they do not. Uh, when they do, they come in different forms. And uh, the policies define when that duty arises in the excess context. The, the trial court and the court of appeals agreed that the landmark duty to defend arises only after the limits of all triggered primary policies are exhausted by payment of settlements or judgments on behalf of Radiator. That was the decision. And that is why we, we would ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals and Trial Court's decisions on horizontal exhaustion. The landmark duty to defend does not arise until that happens. Again, the landmark policy is an excess policy over a series of primary policies. Radiator contends that in those primary policies directly underneath the landmark policies, there are benzene exclusions, meaning those policies do not respond to the benzene cases that we're talking about today. And that is true. In that situation, the landmark duty to indemnify changes, it, it, it attaches earlier than it would otherwise. But the landmark excess policies don't transform from excess policies into primary policies because of that. I would assume that these policies that exclude liability for benzene exposure would exclude both an indemnity obligation and an obligation to provide a defense. No, that is true, Your Honor. And so there's, no, at least in this situation, there's nobody under landmark that has a duty to defend. That is correct. Except, except for radiator itself, assuming it chooses to. No, that is absolutely true. The difference between the duty to indemnify and the duty to defend in Landmark's policies is that they're triggered differently. The, the duty to defend is a separate provision that only is triggered if the limits of the, all, all of the primary policies underneath it, not just directly underneath it, but in other years, are exhausted. That's the difference. The same doesn't apply to the duty to indemnify. So, Radiator also contends that the second prong in the landmark duty to defend provision requires landmark to defend because the underlying coverage is, is not valid and collectible. The second prong in the defense provision says that the landmark duty to defend kicks in if Radiator has no other valid and collectible coverage available to respond to a claim. But that is not the case here. 
the underlying primaries have the exclusion and do not respond. But there are other primaries that are triggered that do respond. And in that situation, the landmark duty to defend doesn't change at all and it doesn't um, become active. Prong B, the second prong in the defense provision, is actually designed to protect radiator in the case where a primary carrier has a duty to defend but becomes insolvent. And in that situation, their policy does become invalid and uncollectible. But that's not the situation we have here either. We don't have any, we're not dealing with insolvent policies. We're dealing with primary policies in many years that are unexhausted and still available. The problem that I think uh, Fireman's Funds Council mentioned is that, that Radiator has settled with many of the primary carriers and, and released them from their duty to defend. And if I'm looking at the correct policy provision, which in a stack of paper this size I may not be, uh, it looks like we have A and B separated by an OR. That is true. So I'm actually looking at the correct thing now. That, that is exactly right. And so normally when we see the disjunctive, it's one or the other, but not both. That's right. And so you were talking about no other valid B, no other valid or collectible insurance is available. What about A? Why, why are you not obligated under A? Uh, under A, a provision or the subdivision A is exactly what the trial court and the Court of Appeals followed in determining that the not just the underlying primary but all primaries have to be exhausted before the duty to defend arises. It says the applicable limits of insurance, the duty to defend arises when the applicable limits of insurance of the underlying insurance. Which, yeah. which, are the, which are the policies that are specifically named in your excess policy as the people below you. Exactly. Okay. And other insurance, which the trial court and the court of appeal accepted as other primary insurance, have been used up in payment of judgments or settlements. That's the key. And, and we have unexhausted primary limits in many years that, that are still available to Radiator, but are the subject of settlements and have been released. In that situation, Radiator steps in, stands in the shoes of the settled carrier, and defends and indemnifies until the limits are met. When the limits are met, Landmark's excess duty to defend kicks in. <coughs> You know, um, Mr. Hardin also brought up a famous insurance maxim that says that uh, the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. So how could Landmark pay indemnity claims and not defense? But that, that insurance maxim, which is applicable in all 50 states, I believe, only applies to primary policies. It does not apply to excess policies with an excess duty to defend, such as landmarks, that requires underlying, all underlying primaries to be exhausted. I just want to mention quickly a, a couple of other things on allocation 
and trigger before I sit down. Uh, everybody else is talking about these issues, so I figured I'd say something. Uh, on allocation, we have basically the same language that National Union has. Uh, a landmark policies indemnify radiator specialty for those sums that radiator becomes legally obligated to pay because of bodily injury, but only if the bodily injury occurs during the landmark policy period. That's the key language. And the cases, um, the cases focus typically on the within the policy period language. It's clear, it's unambiguous, and pro rata allocation fits perfectly with this, this policy language. It is the only method of allocation consistent with this simple policy language. Uh, pro rata time on the risk allocation separates out as efficiently as one can liability for bodily injury in each policy period. The result is that insurers like Landmark are required to cover only liability for injury occurring during their policy period. On the trigger issue, we do not agree with Fireman's Fund, but we do agree with, with National Union. Uh, we have the same... Well, we agree that imperial casualty is the, is the Council, law of the case. Thank, time's expired. Thank, thank you. you very much. Rebuttal. Time is limited, so I'll be brief. Uh, Mr. Subcheck made the comment that Radiator supposedly only cited a single case for the proposition that the difference between all and those sums is immaterial. Radiator, at its appellee brief at pages 38 and 39, actually cited six different cases. One of those is discussed in the text, the rest are in the footnotes. Uh, so of the courts, of the cases that have been cited on this issue, the majority of them have found that all versus those does not make a difference on the allocation interpretation question. Uh, Mr. Uh, Adams uh, said repeatedly that Landmark provides an excess policy. I would note that Apologies, Your Honor. I would note that at Document Exhibit 603, on almost every page of this policy, it makes clear it's an umbrella policy and that the coverage it provides is umbrella, which means when the underlying primary policy excludes coverage, but the umbrella covers it, it drops down. I believe your time's expired. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, everyone.